0: Ascending Olympus, the Inner Sanctums Olympics and Paralympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and once again we are joined by Dan. But we've also got special guest and I'll call you a figure skating expert, Michelle, to talk about the Olympic qualifiers. So how are you, Michelle? We'll start with. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. And Dan?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty good. It's uh it's another week of lockdown, but. There's been some exciting cycling racing, and it's about to kick up um, for the last little bit of the season. And uh, it's actually kind of nice to have a bit of a lull in what's going on in the Olympics, because we're only a few weeks away from the Beijing madness really starting to ramp up.
0: Yeah. So I think they said that it was 130 days, two or three days ago. I think it was Monday our time. Um,
1: I'm not ready to be within 20 weeks of the Olympics. That doesn't sound right. (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) especially when the uh, Summer Olympics only just ended still.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm still doing my follow-up from that. Like, I'm not ready to start and turn the page on the next one yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, if we are going to talk about turning the page, we'll look briefly at Beijing to start off with because uh, the USA's delegation has come out and said that they expect all of their athletes to be vaccinated for the Beijing Olympics. It wasn't mandatory for Tokyo, but... When it comes to Beijing, it's considered that they've had enough time that they can enforce a vaccine mandate, which something else, all things considered.
1: It's the first really big major sporting organisation to require a vaccine mandate. There's um, a number of sports in the US where they have set up different protocols that has made it almost impossible to be an unvaccinated player, but no one's actually gone as far as mandating it strictly. So this is a big step. I expect it to be subject to a legal challenge, Um, but we've got time and I think it's the right move. I think that in reality for Beijing to be safe, we do need athletes to be vaccinated.
0: Yeah, I agree. Also because Team USA is the team that, whilst it affected the entire Australian athletics team, had the COVID scare um, when it comes to the pole vaulter who ended up getting COVID in the village. And he, I believe, was not only unvaccinated but walking around without a mask on. And so I think that they have realised that they can't actually gamble on it this time a little bit. Only 83% of American athletes, and there was over 600, were vaccinated, which the Australian contingent, it was something like 95%. And yes, our team was smaller, better. So at the same time, our vaccine rollout's been a lot worse if we're going to get political on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that also just we saw... I think it was 180 olympics village related cases over the course of tokyo olympics that doesn't even factor into the paralympics and i think that with the disruption that that caused team usa and, and i think it'll be something we'll see more of over the coming weeks from other nations federation is going to put their foot down and say if you, if you test positive and we lose a spot in competition and in the case of the us pole volto who tested positive it was probably a silver medal um, you know, that's on you and we can't take that risk. So we're going to make you get vaccinated, plain and simple.
0: Uh We'll stick to Team USA, but it's more along a featured star of the Ascendant Olympus podcast in that we talk about Simone Biles every couple of weeks. Um, There was an interview that came out this week with Simone Biles saying that she should not have actually made the team, just in that she should have retired from gymnastics because of, Everything that's happened, especially in the past five years uh, with USAG and the Larry Nassar case. And I think that it was an interesting moment because we all have talked about the mental health side of things since uh, her withdrawal from certain events at the Olympics. But at the same time, for her to publicly have said, I should not have gone to Tokyo, is a very different statement.
2: Yeah, I think gymnastics, artistic gymnastics especially, um, does fall into this category of sports in the US where there is a lot of pressure put on to individual athletes to do extraordinary things from a young age and the expectation is that they should be able to reach those achievements and probably even surpass them. And I think for Simone because of her performance in Tokyo but also the Olympics before that. So I think that um especially in the U.S., the culture surrounding gymnastics and a lot of those sports where kind of a a lot of attention is put, especially onto kind of young girls um, who are kind of the leading kind of figureheads in those sports. Um, We'll talk about this later as well with the figure skating, I guess. Um, There's a lot of pressure put on them to kind of achieve specific things, but also to surpass them um, in a way that really doesn't feel like it's got their um, self-interest as the priority in those cases. And I think that's definitely what that interview kind of was trying to kind of communicate in regards to how Simone felt after Rio and going into Tokyo. Yeah,
1: and I mean, it's not the first time that we've heard about these issues, maybe not on such a a focus of mental health, but general treatment of the athlete and the way that the athletes are managed. Um, There was, of course, the ESPN 30 for 30 um, on the defection of the Romanian gymnastics team to the U.S. effectively and the institutionalisation that followed. Um, And I think it's fantastic that Biles is speaking out like this um, because what it does is it means that it's a chance for gymnastics to finally get ahead of some of these issues because they have totally botched handling of Larry Nazar, But if they have a chance now to, to listen to an athlete who is as prominent and as visible as Simone Biles, It's a chance for gymnastics to get ahead and and wipe the slate and actually become a really pro-athlete federation.
0: Yeah, especially, as you said, with the prominence of Simone Biles because it's not in the case of like when they're young athletes and impressionable because she's still young. She's 24, but at the same time, she's considered a grandma in gymnastics. They can't just shut her career down the same way they would with a 16-year-old and go oh you're causing too much of a fuss she's a global phenomenon so she can pretty much say what she wants and ultimately the consequences will be reaped on USA Gymnastics more so than it will be reaped on her uh in the grand in the public sphere at least
1: I mean she doesn't have to compete again and I still have no doubt that we will be hearing from Simone Biles for the next 60 years
2: But also, I think, I think also kind of culturally speaking, it also feels like the system is really broken if you need your most high profile athletes to speak out on kind of something like sexual assault and systemic kind of sexual abuse in a sport in order for it to receive attention and for kind of the the, uh, perpetrators to face consequences for their actions. That's a lot of pressure to put on these athletes where you simultaneously want them to fight um, on behalf of all these other people who have probably been harmed by Nassar, but also then you also want her to have all these achievements um, competitively as well in her career.
0: Yeah, and also you just wanted to love the sport still because that's what happens in these situations partially is people fall out of love with their sport because of the trauma that's been associated with it. We might move on to what will make Dan very happy because it's not the figure skating yet, the Cycling oh, World Championships.
1: On. I'm <laughs> also here for the figure skating, thank you. Don't, 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 don't make me look like that. But, yeah, so I um, stayed up late over the weekend to watch the UCI Road World Championships, and it's fair to say that they were both pretty drama-filled races. At the Olympics, we had two drama-filled races and and there were suggestions after the Olympics that the Dutch in the women's and the Belgians in the men's had botched the race plan effectively and cost themselves the gold medal. Those voices are getting louder, um, despite the fact that in both cases, the team's probably overcorrected. So what I mean by that is that in the women's race at the Olympics, the Dutch let the break get out too far, lost the ability to communicate and then mismanaged the finish of the race and weren't able to stop anyone or they weren't able to pull back the breakaway at the road world championships on the weekend they didn't allow a breakaway they rode hard on the front and they attacked relentlessly all day there was um someone was saying that annemig van vluten in the last 50 kilometers herself had something like 70 attacks um, and then you've got to remember there were six other members of the dutch team who were attacking yeah. they went absolutely relentlessly off the front to try and break apart the race and they just weren't able to do it and when it came to a group sprint the italians got them elisa balsamo with a brilliant sprint as we were talking about jackie we admired the way that she timed it
0: oh my god it was Two so impressive <laughs>
1: She timed it to perfection. She came out right at the last second from her lead out and crossed the line ahead of Marianne Vos. Um, and it, it leads us to how do the Dutch win a mass race because they had seven of the best 15 riders. They had seven of the last 20 riders in that last bunch and couldn't find a way to use that strength in numbers.
0: I, my take is, and obviously I'm not a cycling aficionado, I would never pretend to be, But at the same time, it comes across, especially with the overcorrection, that they were scared to lose this race and scared to bottle it. And that's what caused them to bottle it, is that fear because everyone's out to get the Dutch and they realised it, but they didn't know how to actually fix it.
1: I mean, part of the reason everyone's out to get the Dutch is that coming into the weekend, they had the last three world championships, (laughs) like six of the last seven. Look, like.
0: It's not because they're not good, but at the same time, when you're that good, the pressure is on to win. And that fear of, well, everyone's trying to knock us off the top is real.
1: What's interesting, that was actually kind of what was spoken about for the Belgians after the men's race. So last year, Julian Alaphilippe, a Frenchman, attacked with about 50 kilometers to go and he left and no one saw him again in the road championships and he cruised off. This year, Wout van Aert, who's a Belgian, was the favorite. And in the Olympics, he was effectively outnumbered because the team weren't able to do enough work for him. And he didn't have the energy to pull them back right at the end. And and that's what cost him a chance and a medal. In the world championships, (laughs) the Belgians had a very clear focus that everything was for Wout van Aert. There was no plan B. There was no shared leadership. And it meant that they burned their two IC chasing breakaways they probably didn't need to and when it came down to it Wout didn't have the legs and part of it was probably the expectations of a nation and so the Belgians were left with no plan when Philippe went again he went the same way he went 12 months ago he just rides off up the hill away from everyone it's it's spectacular to watch and he just pulls away
0: yeah um, I mean that time I was like oh it seems a bit early for a breakaway and I was talking to you about it and you were like oh no this is exactly what he did last year and then won by three minutes and I was like oh interesting (laughs) but there was this part of me that was like no you've you've told me this entire time that the Belgians are gonna win this just like the Dutch and yes you got the Dutch wrong but surely not again.
1: (laughs) I mean it it says a lot about the rides of Balsamo and Philippe, that they were able to beat the dominant teams. They were able to outsmart and outwork and outfinish them. And, and the fact of the matter is that probably the Dutch and the Belgians both should be carrying home a rainbow jersey right now and not Philippe and Balsamo. But they made for some very exciting racing. In the women's, with no real bunch, um, the kind of separation started happening about 50 Ks to go and the pace didn't really ever come off. And in the men's, you had an attack with about 70 k's to go. And then the pace really went up from there. And and there was an attack at 50 and an attack at 25 or 22. And that was it. Um, But it made for an exciting chase to the finish. And I mean, I think really that's what cycling wants. We've had for too long road world championships where in the men's in particular, which is always a 260 odd kilometer race, we have, 230, 240 kilometers where there's not much going on. And then all of a sudden we've got a race for the last 30 k's. So to have races that were exciting for a hundred and something kilometers in each case is a really good sign. Um, and of course it's really exciting for us in Australia because our Australians actually raced reasonably well. There were no tactical errors by the Australians really. They just didn't quite have the legs, which is all right. We had some disrupted preparation from our big favorites, and now we've got the chance to try and win the home the rainbow jersey on home soil because the next world championships are in Wollongong. And that's really exciting. Can't wait.
0: <laughs> you you were saying the other night, you were just like, I'm definitely going. Like you can't stop me, kind of thing. I was like, well, considering if COVID's still an issue, you might be the loudest person in the crowd. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it made for some really exciting racing, which is what we really want out of the world championships.
0: Yeah, is there any more to the World Championships coming up or is it done and dusted completely?
1: No, so the elite men's and women's races are the last two races of the week of World Championships. So it started off with the juniors the weekend before and we were talking about the fact that we'd seen some some time trials and some junior races. So uh, it's a pretty good way. And now this weekend, we have a race called Paris-Roubaix where they race from Paris to Roubaix, which is a fair way. <laughs> Um, and it's known as the Hell of the North is the name of the, the unofficial name of the race because they ride along the cobbled roads of the Ardennes through the war oh. fields on those big Roman cobbles. Um, it's normally cold. It's often wet and muddy. And the riders come in caked in mud. And there's a reason it's called the Hell of the North. But this weekend, there are some people who have a point to prove after what happened at World Championships. And everyone's in reasonably good nick, so I think we could see some fireworks.
0: I guess my question is, and it's mostly out of curiosity, but you explained to me that Pogacar was not a chance in the World Championship road race. Is the yellow jersey winner from the Tour de France this year a chance in this elite road race or no, not really?
1: No, Paris-Roubaix is similar to what we saw in the World Championships. It's not quite as hilly. Um, so as you'll be thrilled to know, my tips are going to be Wart Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, <laughs> Julian Philippe, and Jasper Sterven, who are two medalists and two favorites, um, for this kind of race. And I think that's the kind of rider we're expecting. They they're called classics riders because they ride the classics races like this. Um, they're all rounders and this is exactly the kind of race that they all built their reputations on was winning. Paris-Roubaix or Tour of Flanders. These are the races that built those reputations and there's a reason for that.
0: I'll come in next week very smug if you're wrong. (laughs) And it's like based on no evidence of my own. It's just, (laughs) Dan was wrong again about cycling. (laughs) Let's move on to figure skating. There was a pretty important competition this weekend, Nebelhorn Trophy, which resulted in of the four potential Australia quota spots being earned. They did earn two in the men's and women's singles, but it was an interesting competition um, to say the least. I guess, Michelle, I'll let you take the lead. So basically because of COVID
2: and kind of the restrictions on kind of travel and international competitions that were able to occur in the past season at this Olympic qualifiers, many nations were actually competing for extra spots um, to fill their quotas even more. It wasn't, it, do, it didn't just consist of uh, nations who were competing for their one spot at the Olympics. And because of that, and, and you'll see this in a couple of events, we actually had quite a few pretty kind of top skaters from kind of top uh, skating countries such as Russia and the US and Canada and Japan uh, competing for their second or their third spots at the, these qualifiers, wh- which really made this competition much more interesting and kind of more dynamic than probably past Neville Horns were.
0: Yeah, definitely compared to 2017, just because 2017 it felt like it was an Olympic qualifier, aside from the pairs, because the top two of the top three teams in the world at the time were there and they weren't looking for qualification spots. And then you look back to 2013 when lots of people were going, but it was like people that finished 10th at the competition at the time when there was only six spots available were qualifying for the Olympics because there was just people competing to get competition in early in the season. Whereas this year it was like, aside from specific European athletes, um, they were just there to qualify for the Olympics.
2: Exactly. And some of these spots were kind of, somewhat kind of a, a chance for these skaters to get some redemption. They probably had poor performances either at Worlds or last season. And kind of, they were really kind of, there was a lot of pressure on them probably by their nations in order to get these extra spots, uh, to make a case for them being on the Olympic team at all. Obviously the spots that they earn here aren't necessarily guaranteed to the athletes who got them, but it's very much a good case if they're able to earn a spot for their country about why they should be on that Olympic team. So that was also something to kind of keep in mind. And that I think especially played out in the men's event
0: Yeah. Um, the men's event a little bit, and I guess it's more of an Australian perspective, it felt like short program, good, free skate, bad. But (laughs) at the same time, the men's event, which is the event where you typically see the like hardest level of difficulty, there will be multiple skaters doing quadruple jumps, um, that kind of thing. There was probably about four skaters that you would consider to have been your top four, which realistically. That was at least the top three was correct. Um, I would say the Gabrielle Frangipani, who was not even going for an Olympic qualifier spot, he is one of those rare European skaters who was competing, who ended up finishing fourth. That was the outlier, essentially, in the men's results. But I'd say Brendan Carey's short program was more surprising to me than his free skate performance because he was third after the short. Um, he is the Australian, of course with a 85.89 and it was like for Brendan it was nearly flawless Um, and that is not to be demeaning but he is coming off the back of a broken foot or a broken ankle I believe and for that to be his first competition back and for him to have nailed the jumps the way that he had he'd lost a level on a step sequence which that happens that's a Um, minor issue in the men yeah that's level three step sequence is common in the grand scheme of things that was like oh wow (laughs) Brendan's back. Whereas Freescape Brendan was in, that was more what I expected in the sense of there were things that really worked and there were things that really didn't. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think Brendan in general kind of as we've been following his career it's definitely kind of a case of this is a skater with so much potential and it's very much the chances on kind of is he able to deliver in when it counts and kind of land all his jumps when it matters, so I think. after his like really impressive performance in the short program, going to the free skate, I did have some concerns. I don't know if I thought that he would not qualify that Olympic spot, kind of looking at where he was after the short, but while watching the free, I did get nervous at times that maybe it, maybe it wasn't enough.
0: Also at the same time with Brendan, I thought that there were people that could surpass him in the free skate even if he did skate relatively clean just because some people have more difficult elements um, and your base value does count for a lot. When your grade of execution is factored on a percentage of the base value of your elements. But at the same time, I expected there to be like a full or two and maybe something else to go wrong. First competition of the season, pretty normal that that happens but at the same time I also think I didn't expect him to slip down to seventh because he had a 10 point gap between himself and who was in eighth at the time exactly and I think one thing to note
2: about this competition that I realized we didn't mention before uh, something that really kind of made it a bit more of a kind of nail biting watch was the fact that there was no text box in the live stream. So we couldn't see how what was happening to his base value at any time and how the judges were kind of perceiving his uh, the grade of execution of his elements while he was doing them, which meant we were all just waiting for the score to come up as he was, I,
0: I imagine, in that freeze gate to see whether or not he had actually done enough. It was the competition was like three days ago and I already forgot about the fact that there was no tech box. And I was like, I don't know if the spins are getting called as level fours or not, Um, <laughs> which it's like I can watch a jump and see a jump and be like, yep, that's that. But sometimes it's like, I'll be like, that's a level two spin and they will give it a level three. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not a judge. But yeah, I think that the big thing that was interesting, and we'll say it because it's the men's, is that um, pesky little cue that some of the skaters get. In particular, Vincent Zhou had, who won the competition, but got five cues on his jumps, which... Cues meant to be exactly 90 degrees,
2: kind of, you landed at 90 degrees off, whereas an under-rotation call is meant to be over 90 degrees. But if you're getting five cues... Chances are perhaps some of them were more than 90 degrees if you're not habitually rotating your jumps more like with a closer. um
0: Well, and like not to get too technical, but the cue is kind of nonsense in this sense. It doesn't affect your base value like an under rotation will. And it's supposed to affect your grade of execution but that's kind of subjective as to whether it is actually affecting skaters creative of execution marks. Definitely.
2: And kind of the general vibe of the queue is it does seem to be a way to basically not penalize the base values for skaters, probably from kind of nations that are a little bit more influential in the sport. It kind of did feel that way with Vincent, I guess, uh, if he was from a smaller federation perhaps more of those cues would have been under rotations.
0: Yeah, I guess the last thing we'll say on the men's is team USA team Russia, team Japan all have three spots now. I believe they Notably. are the, the only ones the and the Russian one is the big deal I think yeah so this is the first time that
2: Russia is has been has qualified three men to go to on, on their Olympic team. Since 2002, which was a very different time for skating uh, in Russian men's, so that's when you still had Evgeny Krushenko, you still had Alexei Yagodin, and oh god, I can't remember who the third one was. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, but those are the two high profile names from that era. That uh, This is kind of emblematic of the fact that uh, the Russian men since then have been quite messy uh, in their kind of... Uh, in in their ability to deliver consistent performances and especially performing under pressure. Uh, In this instance, we have Mark Kondriatuk to thank for this third spot. Uh, He got bronze at this event, which is very remarkable for two reasons. First of all, this is his senior international debut. Um, Jackie would have mentioned last episode that he is kind of a, was an unknown entity going into this event because Russia didn't really know of him until his kind of breakout performance at Russian nationals. Um, And before that, he was basically just going to junior competitions. So he hadn't been scored at all um, in the senior system. We didn't know what his scores were going to be at this event at all going into it. Um, So he delivered some great performances there, but also the other thing is he didn't have a very strong Um, beginning of the season last season we haven't actually seen his kind of performances across an entire full season of skating in seniors so him delivering um, in this competition and kind of even with all that pressure on him from having to qualify for this third olympic spot which is probably going to be kind of his spot uh was
0: really remarkable to see yeah and i'll be thoroughly disappointed in the russian federation if they don't send him (laughs) I think that Russian nationals will weigh very heavily on their decisions, but he's their most consistent skater at this point, aside from Mikhail Koyada. But we'll move on because (laughs) there's a lot to get through. Uh, The women's event, which Australia's Kalani Crane was in, similar to Brendan, really good short program, was fourth in the short, had a messy free skate, is the polite way to put it. Uh, And ended up finishing seventh overall. So she got through to the Olympics by something like 0.65 points. Like that is how much it's by the skin of your teeth that Australia has qualified in the women's for the Olympics.
2: Yeah. Uh, So both uh, Australian skaters who got Olympic spots this time really kind of stressed Jackie and I out watching this event um, <laughs> they both had to pull out some pretty impressive jump saves at the end of their programs in order to get those final those last points that were necessary in order to probably qualify for this event uh, in the case of Kalani it was her loops I believe that she had to make sure that she did um order, uh, without them we would not have that women's spot
0: no without a doubt um the women's is a little bit different in the sense of they're realistically, whilst she's like only just got in, there is every chance the athlete that is in that first reserve spot, which is Lara Naki Goodman uh, from Italy, there's every chance she will end up actually being granted a quota placement because Sweden has these really strict qualifying rules. Um and whilst they had a quota spot from Worlds, and their skater was at this competition and finished sixth in the end, she had a rough short program, but finished sixth in the short uh, in the free skate, which ended up bringing her into sixth place overall. They she still hasn't met the qualification threshold by the Swedish Olympic Committee standards, despite the fact that ISU and the IOC uh, are both like she's in, she's got all the bare minimum qualifying scores that we need for her to go to the Olympics.
1: Yeah,
2: Sweden has put these very strange kind of scoring expectations. Um, I think this applies to all their sports, but in the case of figure skating, it's not a score that kind of feasibly you would think that she would need to achieve in order to go go to the Olympics. You would think that her performance at Worlds and even at this competition would be enough to prove that she deserves to go to the Olympics. But evidently for the
0: Swedish Olympic Committee, it's not enough. I want to shake them and be like, what more do you need to see? It's
1: it's really interesting because we talked about it off air at the time of the Summer Olympics, Jackie, about the difference between the various qualifying standards. So in Australia... In athletics, if you meet the Olympic qualifying standard, you're on the play to Tokyo, assuming you're in the top three in Australia. In the swimming, you had to make a time that would have been enough to swim in the final at the previous Olympics. And, And looking at that was a really interesting discrepancy because it meant that in some races, we didn't actually send any Australians, even though we had one or even two who'd met the Olympic standard, but not the Australian qualifying standard.
0: Yeah. And I think that says a lot about, at least when it comes to Australia, is the difference between sports where we're considered a powerhouse versus sports where we get very few medals, but when we do, they are very much celebrated, whether they are bronze, silver, or gold. Uh, And like swimming, you can look at our swimming performance
1: but it's interesting because at the end of the day like emma mckeon met yes. every qualifying stand like she was qualifying if the world record was the qualifying standard she was going to the olympics like <laughs> yeah there was no question that that was how that was going to pan out but if you look at guys like zach Stubblety cook for example he just beat the australian qualifying standard at the time and then blitzed the field at the olympics I wonder how many of our athletes would have improved with the extra three months or four months, um, noting that some of the races were slower than they were in Rio, and how many of those who might've made a final. And once you're in a final, of course, anything can happen. And so that's kind of where the question lies. And so I wonder if the Swedes, obviously they know what they're doing. Um, Like you don't get to be in the position of selecting the Olympic team if you're a fool. But it is interesting to kind of consider how they've gone about it, given that really high qualifying standard for this.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that's bizarre is that it's a 200 um, is the magic number, essentially to try and qualify, which at this specific competition, the only person that got over 200 points in the women's was Alyssa Liu, who is an absolute superstar. She did not actually jump any quad jumps or triple axles, but when she was competing as a junior, that's what she was doing. It was more what she was known for, whereas she's developed into a different kind of skater since she's hit the senior scene. Um, but in the case of Josephine Taljigard, who is the Swedish skater, she got an 180 at Worlds. She got an 166 here. And there's only a finite amount of competitions you can compete at. Um, and a 200 mark is massive. Like there are skaters that have hit it once or twice in their career. There are skaters that will never hit it in their career. Kalani Crane is going to go to her second Olympics. And realistically, she won't get a 200 score um, ever. If she does, it will be because she skated a phenomenal short program and a phenomenal free skate. Like you are expecting a 70 in the short program and a 130 in the free skate, which... To do one is possible, to do both is not easy. Definitely, and
2: looking at kind of her tech content at these competitions, it would mean that you would probably, it it would mean for Josephine that she would probably have to have the skate of her life uh, at a competition before the Olympics to get to the Olympics, when ideally you have the skate of your life at the Olympics.
0: Yeah, I get, like, I, I do get the sentiment of what you're saying. Um, Dan but at the same time I have the perspective of realistically Sweden is not going to medal they have not medaled in quite some time um, one of the most famous figure skaters of all time is <laughs> Swedish to be fair so they do have that like legacy of like success at the Olympics but at the same time it's you're denying very talented athletes these opportunities and you're expecting them to peak in October rather than peak come February. I guess, and the top three is something that's interesting to look at. Alyssa Liu got the United States their third spot, uh, but also Ekaterina Kurakova from Poland won herself her Olympic spot, which will be her Olympic debut because they don't have anyone else to send.
2: So she did not qualify for the Free Skate at Worlds, which is what also happened to Vince and Joe. Um, so that's they're trying to prove themselves. And Katerina is definitely a skater that deserves um, a spot. It was probably a big surprise to us when she had that performance at Worlds. Um, she did wonderfully she's a beautiful performer and she looked so happy after she realized that she had made it it was really really lovely to see her in the kiss and cry with her coach she's had a bit of a rough season she used to train in Canada but couldn't get there basically all season because of Canada's travel restrictions so she's had to switch coaches um, probably a little bit against her will just to feasibly have a season where she's not just training on zoom Um, but she seemed to have made it work
0: yeah I think what came out of this and it's something that will be an adjustment that needs to get made. She is clearly a skater that is superior with her free skates than her short programs. She's always had to kind of fight back um, throughout her career. And this is one of those times where it's like you were in, you were well inside um, the Olympic qualifier qualification standard for the short program this time around, but at Worlds she was 32nd. Um, after the short program, which means you miss the free skate cutoff. And that's, at that point, you've just got no chance of making it. Um, But at the same time, her free skates, like, it's just so effortless. And that's the harder program, but she makes them look easier than she makes her short programs look.
2: Definitely. She got sixth in the short at this competition and second in the free, which put her second overall, um, which kind of shows you kind of the, 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 the change that kind of happens and how much better she is as a free skate skater um, that's always really interesting to see and there are some factors about that some people just don't thrive well with that kind of much significantly shorter program where the jumps are a lot more kind of set out there's not a lot of wiggle room if you mess up a jump early to kind of make back those points later you have to do an axle you have to do a combo you have to do a single jump
0: yeah and then you've got Alyssa, who won the short program won the free skate um quite convincingly with the short program but she's easily the best skater for the united states right now for sure
2: um i would say that even well, like, it might be kind of a, a, a bit more of an ask for her, but even had she not earned this spot, I would, if I were the US Federation, I would still be putting her on the Olympic team.
0: Yeah, I full agreement. <laughs>
2: yep. And I think Alyssa's who I was talking about when we were talking about Simone a little bit earlier, where there's a lot of pressure put on this girl, and there's been a lot of pressure for the past few years, ever since she was probably around 13, and she had demonstrated that she had the... Uh, ability to do quad jumps and triple axles, even at that young age, Uh, US kind of figure skating fans have put a lot of hope and a lot of kind of pressure on her to deliver and perform and to kind of win things. Um, And thankfully she has a really supportive team around her who seem to be on her side and really kind of looking out for her mental health and her well-being. But you can easily imagine in that situation, Um, if the pressure really got to her, that it could really have negative impacts on her. That's basically what happened to Gracie Gold uh, in 2014 Sochi, who was the favourite for America, um, where the mental health um, kind of really didn't meant that her performance at the Olympics wasn't what we hoped it was.
0: And also you look at Nathan Chen, who bottled his short program in 2018, Uh, similar like hope and expectation placed upon him. She's gone through a growth spurt, um, between like coming into leaving juniors and coming into seniors, and it's made her a better skater. Which I guess it leads into the Russians are clearly the favorite to go one, two, three in the women's. Um, we don't even know their team, and like I'm saying, they've got four skaters that can win the Olympic gold right now. But in that grand scheme of things, the Russian system is more delay puberty don't let them have those growth spurts because then once they've grown a bit they lose those jumps that make them special especially the quad jumps and they're almost pushed out for a younger skater that's a 15 year old.
2: Yeah there's different priorities um, between the Russian skaters and uh, everyone else in terms of training. Uh, the Russian skaters are very much about to get as consistent of a quad as possible in the body that you currently have, uh, which is why delaying puberty is so important. I think for Alyssa, going through puberty meant that she was able to have the opportunity to relearn some jump technique that we thought was a bit questionable when she was younger. She had some very strange kind of entries into her quads and her landings sometimes made me nervous. And I don't feel that way anymore seeing her jumps now. Obviously she didn't do a quad here, but it does feel like her jump technique has significantly improved as has her basic skating skills, which are things I assume she would have worked on um, through that growth spurt.
0: Yeah. I will guess we'll move on to the other results Neville Horns. We'll start with pairs, um which we did have Australians in. It was Anastasia Golbeva and Hector Giotopoulos Moore. They finished 8th overall. Their short program was not great. They were 13th after the short, but their free skate was excellent. They are a junior pair. Like by definition, she's 15, he's 19. And I think that they performed really well in their first senior event. They are not They have not qualified for the Olympics. I'm actually not bothered by that because at the same time, they're the third reserve, which is a big deal in itself. Like the fact that they have earned Australia the third reserve spot, it's the most likely event where you could actually end up with getting one of those reserve spots when you are later in the reserves. But yeah, it was a great competition for them, especially I think it was their second international competition as well. But first senior.
2: For sure. The last time we saw them was only a couple of weeks ago on in the junior grand prix which kind of was their kind of first competition of this season and they haven't really performed much before that um even as uh, a pair they it's not been long since they kind of paired up at all um in this competition they just had some major errors in the short um an aborted lift and uh, they collided in their step sequence and both fell which kind of fall deductions are pretty nasty in pairs as well. Uh, I also am not kind of that worried for them because they're so new and they're also already so promising. They still have a couple of Olympic cycles that they can compete through. And I'm really kind of excited to see how they grow in the next four years um, and seeing how they look for the next Olympics.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I actually don't have a lot to comment on for this pairs competition, partially because... I'm not super interested in pairs. I find it <laughs> the event that I am the most afraid of and also the least interested in because of that fear. I'll just say a couple of quick things about the rest of the pairs field. Uh,
2: first of all, um, I think it was really impressive that we had the two German pairs at this event, both of whom were not competing for spots to do so well. Um, it, I think it shows some strength in kind of German pairs, um, which and pairs is a discipline that we usually think of as dominant by the Chinese and the Russians. Um, I was also really surprised and impressed impressed at the Spanish um, pair who were kind of who got the first spot they were second in this event they had gotten second in Lombardia a couple of weeks ago and you know Spain isn't really known for producing really strong pairs teams so that was really impressive as well. Um, The final thing on a note is the Israeli pair, Kops and Krasnopolsky. This is Krasnopolsky's seventh Partner. He's kind of gone through about one partner a season um, and just recycling through them. And it just definitely does seem that he's basically only invested in finding a girl who will be able to get him to the Olympics. Um, he got to the Olympics last uh, in Pyeongchang with a different partner and he's had two or three
0: partners since then. So I believe that this is his third Olympics with his third partner, which... What- Three Olympics, three different partners, many. Yeah, partners yeah. sorry. I should say third Olympics with a completely new partner. It's new partner who dis.
2: And it's not like his previous partners have been bad. They've all been really promising and definitely the kind of thing if they stayed together for more, longer than a season, they could probably really kind of
0: grow and develop together. But no, he's just moving on to the next one. And lastly the ice dance event. Dan would you like to take this one?
1: (laughs) Yeah obviously. Um, Michelle do you want to kick us off?
0: The first
2: thing I want to say about the ice dance event is that ice dance is clearly the most political of the disciplines and you could very obviously see that in every aspect of this event.
0: Yeah it's um judges choose violence when it comes to ice dance. Ice dance is the one that has the judging scandals that are famous uh, in particular, 2002 Winter Olympics.
1: And I again repeat, I am in favour of strongest, fastest, largest.
0: Yeah, okay. No then what- judging. Whatever, Dan, that doesn't work. <laughs> it especially doesn't work in ice dance, strongest, fastest, largest. Can you imagine, Jackie? I mean, you can have taller girls in ice dance than you can in pairs. So I guess the tallest girl wins. <laughs> um, but. I thought it was a really interesting competition. Australia had uh, Holly Harris and Jason Chan. uh, And I'll start with their rhythm dance, which is to Kylie Minogue. Um, This is a team that has a trend of, they will either skate to queer icons um, and their free skate is to Shaka Khan, or they skate to super Australian stuff. So their free dance last year had Waltzing Matilda in it, which... As a skating fan, like, I can't even make sense of the logic (laughs) of that. But you've gone for queer icon and Australian Kylie Minogue for the Urban Dance Rhythm Dance this year. And I'm like, yes,
1: (laughs) this is exactly what I want. I think what you really need to say is, yes.
2: Shut up. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Absolutely. This is the program that I'm sending to everyone in kind of my life no matter how much they care about figure skating, to be like, check out these guys. They represent Australia and they're fabulous. Love them as much as I do, please.
0: But they didn't actually get a qualification sport. And as far as I made a call that they were our second most likely to qualify, which, okay, both Jackie and Dan were bad at calls last week, all things considered. But <laughs> um, they... Ice dance is the tightest discipline by far, but they're not even in a reserve spot for the ice dance, which to me was very surprising that they were that far down the order. For
2: sure, when I mentioned that ice dancing, ice dance has a lot of politicking in it. I also think that Australia is less influential in ice dance compared to the rest of the disciplines. In pairs, obviously, we don't have a particularly strong field, but we we seem to have a good. Kind of deal going with the Russians, where they will give us their girls and they will let us co- uh, let us go to their coaching teams. Um, well, also so we with- have the Russian technique that the judges like.
0: Yeah, well, also with the pairs, like we have the pedigree of having junior world champions uh, not that long ago. But ice dance is a whole other scheme where we've got three teams. We can't qualify for an Olympics to save ourselves. It feels like, and we trip. We've tried really hard this time. Yeah, definitely. And kind of
2: all the teams above have basically been European countries.
0: That's all I'll say about that. What was your take on this event as a whole as far as the... Let's go with the rhythm dance to start off with because it is urban, uh, which can mean a lot. <laughs> but do you want to explain it a little bit Sure. So uh, what distinguishes the ice dance rhythm dance
2: from every single other uh, event in the figure skating is that it is the most strict in terms of the music that you can choose and the steps that you can do. In the rhythm dance there is always a theme that is decided on by the ISU. This year it is urban dance which uh, is upper interpretation but basically it does mean that the ISU wants disco, funk, uh, hip-hop, And kind of probably more poppy contemporary music that's what they're trying to encourage. Uh, However the pattern which is the set step sequence that all the skaters need to do is a blues pattern which is to a very slow BPM um, which sometimes doesn't really fit well with your with a a very upbeat fast-paced hip-hop theme that you're going for. So we have a lot of really jarring programs we ha- uh, in which kind of the music cuts feel really sudden and don't make sense. Uh, the Kylie program that Harrison Chan doing works because their slow song and their fast songs are all Kylie Minogue songs. So it feels a little bit more consistent and that really is a strategy that works. Other teams sometimes opt for uh, a, a song that is fast paced and upbeat regularly, but they slow it down which sounds really jarring, or they use a cover, a more laid-back cover of a song that we know of.
0: Yeah. And this event, like specifically Nebelhorn, I know that it will sound surprising because you'd think that I'd pick the team that was like the first and first. But the team that actually impressed me, similar with you, with the pairs, is Mueller and Deke who are the Mm -hmm. Germans, who didn't need to qualify. They finished fourth in the rhythm dance, third in their free dance, but the margins are so tiny that they actually ended up second overall. This is a team that I think can actually be a sneaky top 10, ultimately. They will have to like up their rhythm dance score especially, but we're not seeing how the top 10 uh, teams from Worlds are scoring with their rhythm dance, which... There are some years where just like those big teams really struggle with the rhythm dance early in the year.
2: For sure. We haven't seen that many of our top kind of ice dance teams from Canada, from America, from Russia. Um, And even kind of in terms of program announcements, they've been far and few between. The goal, I think, in this ice dance is either you do well or you go viral with your program and I think the Germans are set up kind of for both they had a really strong performance with some good scores they have a uh, Toxic by Britney Spears in their rhythm dance and they're doing a Whitney Houston free dance what more can you really ask for
0: yeah they'll either go viral for their rhythm dance or their free dance and they don't necessarily have the same je ne sais quoi that Virtue Moyer did in 2018 but it's like This is something that it's a program that if the German Olympic Committee or the German Skating Union really wants to promote it, they'll do well with it. Um, The other team, which they're not in their senior debut by any means, but it's going to be their first, like, hopefully proper senior season, is the Georgian team of Kazakova and Revia, who finished third overall. They, They were fifth in the rhythm dance and second in the free dance, finished third overall. I... Thought they were great, and <laughs> they kind of created the one-handed cartwheel craze in figure skating in the past year. Yeah, so
2: ice dance has gone through a couple of rule changes in the past few years in order to kind of add a little bit more di- dynamic uh, m- movement and variety into the um, into the programs. Uh, there's some really strict rules around when can you touch the ice, when can you be on two knees, when can you do slides, or do they get classified as falls. And kind of one of the things that have arisen from a, a, a relaxation of these rules are cartwheels on the ice. Um, the most iconic being by Kazakova and Revia, uh in their final junior season, which would have been 2019-2020. Um, they did really well. They skated to In the End by Lincoln Park, which is now also being skated to by many ice dancers as their rhythm dance. Um, so they also have this kind of influence. I think they've chosen some really fun music as well. Yeah, by Usher <laughs> in their rhythm dance. And they have a really interesting kind of innovative horror-themed free dance, which we don't usually see. Um, they're a very athletic team. So they do a lot of really cool looking moves, including him throwing her over his head, which is terrifying, (laughs) but also a lot of fun when kind of people who aren't as well versed in ice dance to see.
0: For context, rhythm uh, ice dance girls are not meant to get thrown ever, ever. (laughs) Once upon a time, ice dance girls shouldn't have even been lifted over their partner's heads. Yeah, I think that Neville Horn leaves Ice Dance in a really interesting position because the French team of Papadakis and Ciceron, we don't know whether they'll go to the Olympics just because of vaccine requirements. Um, and also they missed the end of last season. But then the two Russian teams that are left are, like the two Russian teams that you would expect to be the top two Russian teams, I would prefer them just it's partially biased but also like my own assessment of skating is that they would be positioned ahead of the americans and the canadian teams that are expected to go to the olympics
2: i definitely think that uh Sinitsyn and katsalapov one of the russian teams is kind of the favorite uh if the french aren't there but i think that depending on how the U- how hard the us push for an ice dance medal Um, there is a pretty strong chance that um, they might come ahead in some scoring kind of details. Um, It's hard to say at this point because we haven't seen them all compete internationally. Um, So we'll have to see how this season pans out and how uh, the scoring looks because Ice Dance is very biased. Sometimes we see some things that we think don't deserve to get scored the way they do. Um, And that's going to be what's the most telling in this discipline.
0: Yeah, I think that that's all we actually have time for. Um, you and I could talk about figure skating and the Olympic figure skating in particular for hours on end. But Michelle, would you like to give us your social media handles for people to hopefully follow you?
2: For sure. The amount of people who have told us we should start an ice skating figure skating podcast is a few too many, to be honest. Um, but yeah, if you want to follow me, my Twitter is in walkincursive. Um, so that's W-A-L-K-I-N-C-U-R-S-I-V-E. Um, this is where I post mostly about figure skating and my favourite things are the skating memes. So if you are interested to hear my skating hot takes, that's where you'll find me.
0: Thank you for coming on. Um, we both really appreciate it because whilst I can talk about figure skating for ages, it's good to have someone to bounce off of.
1: Yeah, I mean, no one wants to hear me talk about figure skating. That's why we bring you on the show. <laughs>
2: Well, glad to be of service. I'm also happy to come back when more skating stuff has happened in the season, of which there will be. Skating is always dramatic. <laughs> so, there's a lot of drama in skating, so there's always a lot to talk about.
0: This has been Ascending Olympus. You can find us on Twitter at AscendingOllyPod. You can read any stories we write about Olympics or Paralympic stories on theinnersanctum.com.au both Dan and I released cycling world championships and the Nebelhorn trophy uh, articles in the past week thanks for listening and we'll see you next time